We're beginning a new series tonight uh, on life verses or life-changing verses of the Bible. And we're, I'm, I'm stealing this idea from someone else, Frank Borum, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But before we begin, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have in him. And Father, we thank you for your word, your written word. Because of that, we have absolute truth, inerrant truth, certain truth, true truth, on which we can build our lives. Thank you, Father, for how your word has transformed our lives and how your word has been used of you to change lives throughout history. Help us to see that and rejoice in you as we look tonight to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the author that I mentioned is the one who kind of gave me this idea. It's not when I say gave, I'm stealing from his books he wrote. He's, he's with the Lord and has been for some time. His name's Frank Bohr. Uh, these are the volumes, and I'm just going to read through them during the series. <laughs> uh, so there's five volumes. They're called now Life Verses, published by Craigle. But, for example, volume five, three, two, four, one... Was I think it was his first one, and it was called uh, "A Bunch of Everlasting." So, so they kind of changed the title. "Bunch of Everlasting" doesn't sell too well today. Life verses that communicates. But before I talk about the person we're talking about tonight, mm-hmm. Thomas Chalmers, I want to talk a little bit about Frank Bohr. Uh, aside from my mentioning him, have you ever heard of him before? No, uh, he's kind of a one of those best kept secrets. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. I heard about him uh, through uh, the chaplain at Dow Seminary at the time, a godly man, Dr. Richard Sumi. And uh, he mentioned Doc, uh, Frank Borman. See, you know, once you really have a high regard for someone and they just keep quoting someone or mentioning, you know, you take a note and say, I want to find some of that. So that's how I came across uh, these Life Versus books from Frank Borum. Um, he was... Uh, Born in Eden, uh, Frank Borum now, was born in England in 1871. That's the Victorian era. Uh, And his family was uh, sent him off to school. But apparently um, he uh, graduated high school at 14 and was doing well in school. But he he had to stop university uh, because they ran out of money. And so he took a job as a clerk, uh, I think for a, a brick company. And uh, while he was working for them, he had a kind of a turning point in his life. One day he was walking carelessly across some of the company's rail tracks. Can you guess where this is going? He failed to see an oncoming rail carriage, which hit him and dragged him underneath, severing his foot. So here's this young man, you know, college age, we might consider, uh, older teen. I, I don't even know if he's in his 20s yet. Um, and, and he was in the hospital for months, had uh, septicemia, he recovered, but he had an ongoing limp that uh, made things difficult. And so um, it was too hard for him to walk all the way to work as he was, and so he took a job instead in London where it wasn't quite as um, much a walk. He was lonely, he went, you know, went to the big city, didn't know anyone, started attending churches, going to even to, to street preaching. And it was in that time he came to know Christ as his Savior. He was about 18 years old. And um, he wrote back to his his previous pastor, and his 
his previous pastor had written him a letter, you know, kind of well wishes on your trip and kind of urged him to trust Christ. Well, eventually he did through the ministry of these various churches come to know Christ as Savior. Uh, in that time, he, like I mentioned, street preaching was one of the things this group did. And, and, and so he did some street preaching. Um, he thought perhaps he could be used of God in foreign missions. And so um, he sat down and had a meeting with Hudson Taylor. And he said, well, this is an easy thing to do. I'm going to look into missions. So you sit down and, and Hudson Taylor noticed his limp and said, forget it. You, 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 you couldn't work in, in foreign missions. Um, eventually, uh, he caught the attention through a street preaching with someone you may have heard of before, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was very interested in, uh, in him, and uh, he invited him to enroll in the pastor's training college. So that was something Spurgeon developed, was at this pastor's training college. You had to be actively involved in ministry. Now, a lot of times today, people go to seminary, and they really have never really even done ministry. Well, for the, to get into the pastor's training college, you had to be in ministry. Uh, and and so he was invited in by Spurgeon himself. Uh, two days after Spurgeon signed his application, Spurgeon died. So he was the last student invited and approved by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, and I'm sure he would much rather have had many years of exposure to Spurgeon than to have that claim to fame. Spurgeon's son came back from New Zealand to you know, be one of the pastors of the church and pointed this young man to a church in New Zealand. And so he went to New Zealand and eventually from there to Tasmania. Anyone have a clue where Tasmania is? Off Australia. Yeah, it's off Australia. Of course... We can always guess somewhere in East Texas, and you, you probably have an 80% chance of being right, off of Australia, and then from there eventually to Australia. But one time when he was there in Hobart, Tasmania, he just just kind of like off the cuff announced that he was going to start a new series the next Sunday, and every second Sunday night he would be dealing with, quote, text that changed the world. He figured that was going to pack them in. It didn't. But... He, he wrote the sermons, and they took off. And uh, the, the first volume, A Bunch of Everlastings, came from that. And there are, in The Bunch of Everlastings, 23 sermons. Some you would know. Martin Luther, uh, Hugh Latimer, maybe. John Bunyan, you would know. Stephen Grellett. I don't know either. But but anyway, so, so he took a bunch of these. One of the things, he, he'd always had a fascination for biography. And matter of fact, when he'd come to, I think before even Tasmania, I think it was when he was still in New Zealand, a pastor took him under his wing and said, you know, you need to, you need to read. And so he made a commitment that he would buy and read a book every week. And um, so that, he was a tremendously well-written. This, this book has sold millions and it's been through 32 reprints. And I don't even know if that counts this version of it from Craigle. But most people have never heard of Borum. I was reading a web page, and you know they were saying, "Boy, if you can find an actual Borum book, buy it because they they go from forty to five hundred dollars. They're just not in print. Devotional writings, and uh, and so so we'll take that from there. So that's this is I want to give credit, and I'm not just I'm, I'm using I'm reading his sermon and then doing further study, but just I have to give credit. This is where I got the idea, and 
probably use mostly people that he's used. There's 127 options. We won't go that long. Yes? Some of the syllables are kind of soft. Do you mind spelling his last name? I'm having trouble understanding exactly the last name. Think of a preacher, Bore and Ham. <laughs> B-O-R-E-H-A-M. They either bore or they're hams. Thank you. <laughs> and he goes usually by F-W. So anyway, that's uh, Borum, and let's now talk about the first one, Thomas Chalmers. Okay, I've mentioned this, that I was going to be speaking about Thomas Chalmers. Aside from that, have you heard of Thomas Chalmers? Again, he's son that, that, if you were to do a quick look, I I didn't, on Amazon, I, I think you'd have a hard time finding works by Thomas Chalmers. Part of the problem may be that um, his collected works I think exceeds 25 volumes. I read uh, one of my favorite biographers is Ian Murray, Banner of Truth Trust. And he did a, bio- he did a biography of Scottish uh, divines, and he did a chapter on Thomas Chalmers. And one of the things he said, he, he used uh, the collected works of Chalmers, but he said there were two volumes just on his biography, so I didn't read it all. So maybe that's part of it. There's so much work he's done. Chalmers, just to put in, I've heard him compared to um, to John Knox in terms of his influence in Scotland. Um, he he was incredibly influential during his lifetime, which is sad that he's kind of forgotten today. He was a leader in the movement that went out of the Church of Scotland to the, to the Free Church of Scotland over liberalism and who actually controls the church. Um, and he was greatly influential in, in many young lives that maybe you would know. You may have heard of the Bonar brothers or uh, Murray McShane, uh, the St. Andrew's Seven. He, he realized, though, his audiences were much smaller as a professor, that if you can influence the pastors, you can influence a greater number. And so that's why he left pastoral ministry eventually to take on that task. So he was a greatly in, used of God in Scotland and, and through that the rest of the world. But again, in our day, we don't know that much about him. So let me give you a little background about Thomas Chalmers and then tell you what changed his life. He was born March 17, 1780. So we were four years old as a country. Okay? That gives you a little perspective. To put a little perspective, I always put the first Great Awakening under Wesley and Whitfield and you know what happened up in... Um, Wales and influenced Scotland. You know, I put that in the 1640. Uh, th- th- that would be in the 1740. Uh, and so, uh, in the 16 mid 1600s was the Scottish Covenanters that stood up against the Church of England. So there's a strong heritage. But by 1780, things had cooled down significantly in Scotland. He was the sixth, sixth. He was number six of a family of 14. And I don't know if that means 14 children or 12 children and two parents, but you get the basic idea. At the age of three, he was sent to a local school. At the age of 12, he was uh, sent to University of St. Andrews. And apparently he was quite bright, but what I read about is that if you read his letters home from his first, after a first year of St. Andrews, his his grammar and writing is horrible. <laughs> so I'm so I, 
frankly, that's one of the problems. You send a 12-year-old to university, how seriously are they going to really dig into the studies? At the age of 19, and he had felt that he was you know, called to ministry, and so at the age of 19, he was licensed to preach, which is, again, remarkable. At that time, the standard was you had to be at least 21 to be licensed to preach in the Church of Scotland. So with that behind him, and, and he then uh, also went on and, and studied, his, his real love was mathematics. His ambition was to be a math professor. And so he went to Edinburgh, and there he studied math um, and became an assistant professor. But apparently his lectures on math were just too animated for the senior professor. And I get that. I don't know how you get too animated uh, teaching math. But, but as he was a creative teacher. He was enthusiastic about a subject, and so they kicked him out as a teacher. And for that reason, he had to become a pastor, which is a great reason to become a pastor, because you uh, lose that other job. He was so offended at the university saying he wasn't equipped to teach that he went and started offering private classes in uh, chemistry, and they were very popular, and eventually things got settled between him and the university. But he wanted to prove, I can teach and be useful as a professor. Um, while he was pastoring in, in Kilmany, it's K-I-L-M-A-N-Y, while he was pastoring there, um, he had, he had kind of an interesting approach to ministry. Uh, one of the books I read said this. Um, his neighbor came to him and uh, said, you know, I find you eye busy, sir, with one thing or another, but come when I may, I never find you at your studies for the Sabbath. So in other words, whenever I come to visit you, he was an you know, old neighbor and really friendly, he said, I never see you studying for your sermons. To which... Uh, Thomas Chalmers replied, oh, an hour or two on the Saturday evening is quite enough for that. I'm going to start trying that. <laughs> uh, does that show you something of his heart for ministry? His love, and so, and, and another point, he said, you know, really, um, you can, he, he said this, after the satisfactory discharge of his parish duties, a minister should be able to enjoy or could enjoy five days in the week of uninterrupted leisure for the prosecution of any science which his taste may engage. So in other words, two days a week max for church, and then you could be give yourself to being a mathematic or science professor. So we see his thought of ministry was different from mine. He, at that time in Scotland, they had the, I don't know if you'd call them evangelicals, but there was on one side the conservatives and then the moderates. And what I found is often... Moderates aren't. Uh, the liberal might be a better word. And but that's he. But he camped with the moderates. Frankly, he had a very low, low view of the Christian faith. Uh, in fact, at one point he wanted to write an article so he could kind of show how inadequate it is. He um, didn't really believe the Bible or the fundamentals of, teach, uh, of teachings of Christianity. He really had a very low view of Christianity. And yet he was a pastor. You know, I wrestle with this sometimes when I when I see some of these uh, liberal ministers, and I think, why? If you don't believe the gospel message, if you don't believe the Bible, how do you get up and preach? And a lot of times, what they do is they they preach social issues, 
Uh, or as one person said, church is just one mild-mannered people telling mild-mannered people they need to be more mild-mannered. You know, that, that's kind of a, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's a social thing. It's a, it's a let's be nice kind of a message. But it wasn't trusting in Christ. And so apparently the majority of his sermons were built around the Ten Commandments. And as one person said, he, he preached to all the, and it was a small town, it was a rural area, he preached to all the farmers that, as if they deserved to be in jail. And he would rail against them for violating all the Ten Commandments and being liars and thieves and immoral. And that was the bulk of his ministry for the first several years. Kind of makes you want to go to church. <laughs> oh, I should say, I did see that he also occasionally preached against Napoleon's schemes for Europe. But I'm not sure how that would help you either. But, but, but you get the impression? So he was a scholar. His heart was in academia. He wanted to be a mathematician. That didn't work out, so he was pastoring. But his view is, you know, you put a couple hours into a sermon... And what do you preach? Morality. Law. You need to do a better job on being righteous and upright. And I could just imagine, boy, it'd be kind of hard Sundays to go back to church and say, here we go again. He's going to start pounding on us. Well, he, uh, in 1806, uh, his brother died. Uh, a beloved brother. He'd been uh, away at sea for several years, and he returned returned ill with uh, consumption. You ever hear that phrase, consumption? Now that's one of two things. That's a uh, a politician in Washington, and what they their view of economics, or it's tuberculosis. And of course, back then there, that, that was there just wasn't a lot of hope for someone, with, and he eventually did die. Um, Thomas Chalmers would go and um, went and saw his brother. And I'm going to just read some, some lines from this biography. The calm resignation and elevated piety of that favorite brother seems to have had a most salutary effect on Chalmers' mind. Ah, great writing. What's he saying? He saw his brother dying and saw him at peace. Have you ever seen maybe someone approaching death and there's fear and there's terror and there's all kinds? He saw this this him at peace. And that affected him. And it goes on, every evening at George's, his brother, his dying brother's own request, uh, he would read one of Newton, John Newton's sermons at his bedside or by some member of the family in the rotation. It was one of, uh, and, and I should tell you that Thomas Chalmers had told his people, some of you are reading the wrong kinds of books. Books like Newton's Sermons, Baxter's, Saints' Rest, Doddridge's Rise and Progress of the Christian Life, and others. And there was all the, the conservative fundamental writers. He was saying, you people are reading the wrong books. Read your Bible, basically he was saying. But he didn't really mean believe your Bible. But now, here he had, from the pulpit, named... Do not read the sermons of John Newton. And at his brother's bedside, his brother says, would you read me another sermon of John Newton? And here he is reading his brother the sermons of John Newton. And he saw, and here's the key, he saw it brought comfort. 
and hope and peace to his brother. And that made an impact on him. Well, in 1810, that was, what, did I say 1806? 18, yeah. In 1810, his sister died, Lucy, the 23rd of December, 1810. And as he went back, he tried to encourage his father, who was sinking under um, great sorrow and increasing blindness. So in that time, he picked up a book that's called Wilberforce's Practical View, or Wilberforce's View. Have you ever heard of William Wilberforce? Okay. Remember, he was... Interestingly enough, closely connected with John Newton. And he's someone who came to faith and then spoke out uh, upon the Christian message. And, and, and he applied it in the areas of um, slavery in England. And to improve manners. Now, when I hear that, that he was trying, he wrote, a, his, uh, he really pushed on improving manners in England. Now, I'm not sure, you know, we often think, does that mean you keep the pinky up when you're drinking your tea? What, what do you mean by manners? What he was really saying is social morals. When we think of, you know, some of the, of the old world, we think of them as proper and upright and moral. It was anything like, anything but that in Britain. It was wretched, wretched, wretched. And, and so he was calling people to live a more biblical ethic. But but he, he wrote a book that's called Often Practical View. I, 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 by way of contrast, here's the book that the men are going to read. And it's my understanding that Bubbles will be happy to offer a, a, a book cover to, to anyone that wants to um, not have the, the non- uh, maroon color that some no. people are leaning towards. No. But, but here is Alistair Begg, by the way, Scottish, and he's he has a book for us, Pray Big. Okay? That's how we write titles today. The lady's a longer title. God is more than enough. This is William Wilberforce's book. A practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christian in the higher and middle classes in this country contrasted with real Christianity. You know, that's that's a lot of ink. <laughs> you know, so they, they back then they had these really long titles. That's they have yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's you, you could never you could never tweet back then titles of books. So they often called it Wilberforce's view because uh, it's a practical view of the of the prevailing religious system of professed Christianity in contrast to real Christianity. So Britain is a religious country. It actually, Christianity is the state religion. And he's saying, I would like to contrast professed Christianity and real Christianity. That had an impact as he read it. So think of how God has been using it. He's watched his brother die in faith, encouraged by gospel preaching John Newton's sermons. He's seen his sister die, and he's seen the sadness of death. Uh, years later, um, this is what Thomas, Thomas Chalmers wrote. I'm now most thoroughly of the opinion, he goes on, that the system of do this and live, no peace can ever be attained. It is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That is quoted once, maybe twice, in, in Wilberforce's book. 
See, what he was preaching was a morality. Do and live. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not. That was all he knew. You need to live a moral life and have hope. I read of, of a pastor at that time. Someone was, he went to the deathbed of someone, and, he, and the person said, how can I be sure of going to heaven? The pastor was horrified. Because unless you've done something really, real horrible, how could you ever ask? How can I know for sure I'm going to heaven? Of course you're going to heaven. That's the pitiful gospel that was in the pulpit in England in that day and in Scotland. Well, he read this book and it hit him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that's Acts 16.31. That's his verse. Remember when they, Paul was in, in jail and, and there was the earthquake and the, <clears throat> the, the guard you know, was ready to take his own life and they called out, don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And he came to them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't start quoting the Ten Commandments to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. One of the things that struck Thomas Chalmers was, that's a command. I've been preaching the wrong commands. I've been preaching moral reformation. But you can never be good enough. And so as he read William Wilberforce, Wilberforce helped him see that he'd been preaching a false gospel. Um, and then he goes on to describe in his own words the effect it had in his ministry. Now, again, this is maybe this is why his books aren't quite such popular. But here's what he said. I'm not sensible that all the vehemence with which I urged the virtues and the properties of social life had the weight of a feather on the moral habits of my parishioners. Let me translate. He says, I am not sensible. I am unaware that all my preaching about stop this sin, start living better, made a whit of difference. Didn't have the the effect of a, um, the weight of a feather on their moral habits. And what he's saying is, I was there for years preaching the Ten Commandments. And you know what? Not one person's life was changed. No one changed their moral conduct. Wasted words. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments as a picture of God's moral law, but the problem is, if we don't, talk, if it's not built on faith in Jesus Christ, then we don't have the ability to live in a way that honors the Lord. And you cannot earn God's approval. You live a moral life as a fruit of already being changed. So here's what he said after that statement. It was not till I got impressed by the utter alienation of the heart in all its desires and affections from God. It was not until reconciliation to him became the distinct and the prominent object of my ministerial exertions. It was not till I took the scriptural way of laying the method of reconciliation before them that I ever heard of any of these subordinate reformations, which I aforetime made the earnest and zealous, but I'm afraid at the same time the ultimate object of my earlier ministrations. Okay, I'll translate. He said, I'm not aware that all that preaching, years of preaching law, changed one life. Because it can't. And so he said, what I became aware of it was not until I was impressed with the alienation of the heart. Because 
What he's basically saying is, you don't tell dead people to behave better. The problem's a heart problem. And that's, and I remember when I was recently, this last summer, I was teaching a course in Galatians, you know, that by Zoom overseas. And I was talking about this very concept that it's, you know, the, the salvation by grace through faith. And, it's, and, and, and what Paul was arguing against was this idea that, you know, um, we, come up, we, we live the law to win God's approval. One of the students said, sir, I want you to understand that as a result of this teaching, it's going to transform our ministry to youth. Because I've been working all on a performance basis and not addressing the heart. That has changed. And, and so that's where this you know, brilliant professor, he came to understand man's problem is not lack of obedience to the Ten Commandments. Man's problem is a heart that's alienated from God. And as he said, in all its desires and affections. And it was not until reconciliation to him became the distinct and prominent object of my ministerial exertion. So what did he preach? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're alienated from God. You need to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. So it used to be, I read different accounts, he would He'd, be, he'd lean over the pulpit and say, you stop reading that John Newton stuff. It's bad for you. And now after he read John William Wilberforce and scripture and saw it in life, he would lean over that pulpit and beg people to trust Christ as Savior. And he'd go through this, he'd preach a sermon just pouring out his heart. And then they'd close the service and after the service and closing prayer, sometimes, and uh, don't don't be terrified here, he'd launch into another lengthy exhortation of their need of Christ because he started to realize that's the issue. That's the issue. And so if you can imagine, now back then you didn't go to seminary, you went to university to learn theology and go into the ministry. And here, so here was a thoroughly trained high-level university pastor professor who didn't have a clue of the gospel. And all he could do is try and tell people to try and, you know, you're not doing enough, do more. And I imagine they were so frustrated how, how it must have transformed their lives. Let me see if I can go back to that quote. Remember the, the neighbor that came to him and said, you know, why don't I ever see you studying your Bible? There was more to that. He's what he used to. He said, uh, in former years, he said, I find you eye busy, sir, with one thing or another, but come when I may, I never find you at your studies for the Sabbath. And he said, oh, an hour or two on the Saturday evening is quite enough for that. Later, he said, I never come in now, sir, but I find you eye at your Bible. All too little, John, all too little. So all of a sudden, what, in a couple hours, and I can throw together, a, you're not doing enough to, to please God. Now he can't get enough scripture. And he was transformed in his own life from, frankly, he didn't really believe the gospel. He didn't have a high view of God or his word. Then he became aware his problem was his heart was estranged from God. And what he needed to do was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to know his salvation. And then he delighted to preach that message to others. 
Well, he continued then for a while, and they, he was taken off to a larger church, and God used him in a mighty way in that community. And I think it was in Glasgow. They eventually, he, uh, he saw how illiterate people were, so they started Sunday schools. We think of Sunday school as where we teach kids Bible. For them, Sunday school, kids worked back then in the, in the mills and in the mines. And so that was the one day they had off, and so that Sunday school was the t- place to teach literacy and that sort of thing to children and, and maybe give them a hope of life. And then they established a whole parochial school system. And they made a point of requiring that there be a minimal fee charge to all students because there was kind of this label, if you went to a charity school, uh, you weren't, or you went to regular school and you were one of the charity students. He said, we'll have none of that. Everybody's here on the same basis. Everybody pays the same fee, but it was minimal. But he established a school system, and then he, it was so much on his heart every day he'd visit at least one of the schools and try to encourage that. So as a result of preaching the gospel, he went forward. Eventually, he was asked to go to university and, and teach. Not math, but uh, moral philosophy. That sounds like a sleeper. But, 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 other, but he said, that's, and that's not the gospel, he said, but it is the door to the gospel. And he said, and that's when many of our students go to university, they start to take classes in ethics. If it's godless, it shipwrecks them. He said, I want to rescue I want to protect the students. And so I want to teach that and then introduce from that uh, theology as the doorway to theology. And he became profoundly popular and useful in God's light. So here's the takeaway, if I may. The, The application is don't go buy Thomas Chalmers' 25 volumes if you can find them. I'm not sure that would be the greatest investment of your energies. But sometimes we are a little intimidated by someone who's brilliant, by someone who's well-educated, by someone who's a professor or even a pastor. Professors and pastors can be just as lost. Even Yes, even pastors can be just as lost as anyone else. So here was a highly trained pastor who really was an enemy of the gospel. Don't you read Wilberforce. Don't you read Newton. What made the difference? I think a big part of that was he saw the effect of the gospel in his brother's life. When you're in pastoral ministry, I consider it one of the sacred privileges of of being a pastor is I have been I have the opportunity to be with many a person in those last moments of life it's like to me entering the holy of holies it's a sacred moment and I count it a a privilege and a responsibility every pastor that's a part of their life if they're involved in normal pastoral ministry I imagine Thomas Chalmers saw a lot of people die believing his hopeless message. And then he saw his brother and the effect of gospel sermons on his brother's life. And I'm sure he must have gone away from that bedside many a time and thought, there's a difference here. There's a difference. 
And so when he picked up that book that was quite controversial and causing a stir in England, uh, William Roeforce's view of the Christian life, by God's grace, he took the message to heart. And he came to know Christ. And it transformed his ministry. Brothers and sisters, don't be intimidated by the educated or the ordained. Every human being either knows Christ or doesn't. And there are many a lost person in pulpits today. Many a lost person that's a professor today. And have a boldness to share your confidence in Christ. Recognize that the greatest need of man is reconciliation. That's what he came to understand. And a simple verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can be transforming. It was for Thomas Chalmers. And it has been to many for 2,000 years. And so uh, I hope you will be encouraged to step back and learn a lesson from Thomas Chalmers about the need of everyone for Christ. I know as I say that, I'm reminded of, I had a speech professor at Berkeley. He was the chairman of the, uh, of the department of rhetoric. And, um, and I talked to him about my faith in Christ, and he actually was an ordained Baptist minister. Um, but I've told you his story sometimes. He went to a liberal seminary where they, he was liberated from believing that he had to believe the Bible. But I remember one time I, I said, you know, can I give you this little booklet that tells you what I understand the Christian message is? And I handed him a copy of the Four Spiritual Laws. To, I don't know if it ever made an impact on him, but it, he was an intimidating. I mean, that was intimidating. But he needed it just as much as the person sitting by the fountain. And so, um, but, but also, brothers and sisters, People are watching us. They see our lives. They see our homes. They see how we face difficult times. And they can see Christ and our trust in him. May we be instruments of his glorious hope. Lord, thank you for Thomas Chalmers and how you did bring him to faith and use him mightily. Father, I pray that we might be used mightily because of the mighty gospel that we know. And Father, may your word have an impact in our life, a transforming impact as it did in his. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.